Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley and I'm the publisher on Women's Agenda and I'm here with my Agenda Media co-founder, Tyler Lambert. Hello. Hello. On the agenda this week, we have a couple of excellent wins. We also look at the buy now, pay later option for childcare and why that kind of suggests that the system is rather broken and cervical cancer some massive wins in this space that we really really want to share to highlight a little bit more reason for optimism in the women's health space thank you for listening so Tyler, how are you? I'm good, Ange. How are you? Good, good. I should also mention that this week we will be talking a little bit about how to boost your confidence in investing. And I have a couple of tips there because I really did lack a lot of confidence in this area some time ago. I still don't have a huge amount of confidence, but it's improving with time. It's good, but you can pass on your wisdom. <laughs> so what is your win this week? My win comes from Jacinda Arden. And let's face it, a lot of my wins over the last few years have come from Jacinda Ardern because she is the dream. But essentially, she was giving an update on Facebook Live last night about New Zealand's COVID-19 response. And she was interrupted in the most adorable way by her three-year-old daughter, Neve, who apparently had emerged from her bed three times over and... Jacinda's response to this was just so awesome because you can see her as her daughter's peeking into the door and she just says really sweetly, you know, you're meant to be in bed. And then afterwards she brands it as this parenting fail. But to be honest, it's like the furthest thing away from a parenting fail. I think it's just, it just epitomizes exactly where we need leadership to be. And I love that she really does exemplifies that in everything that she does. And she normalizes that situation for so many other families because God knows she is the most efficient, competent, amazing leader in so many ways. But, you know, the reality is that she has a young family and there are going to be disruptions in your life when you have a young family. And I just, yeah, it was great. It was a beautiful little reality check from Jacinda Ardern and Neve. Yeah, we've all been there. <laughs> My kids are not quite as polite as Neve was in her interruptions, but maybe that's just because Jacinda Ardern is a better parent. <laughs> yeah, look, I think we all have been there and especially in the last two years, everyone's been there and I think we have so much more empathy for each other now. I think these situations, whenever they pop up, they're just still so funny. Like the BBC dad one, I think they're so great. I think they just really lighten the mood at the moment. Yeah, I hope so. Because one of my concerns was there that it felt like quite early on in the pandemic, it was so funny and people were getting to know kids. And then as the months rolled on, there was this sense, and this doesn't happen in our team because maybe because we lead the team and we're the ones with the kids that come and interrupt the we team. Have but annoying kids. <laughs> I've heard about it happening in other teams where people started to get kind of fatigued about it. And there were some suggestions made that, you know, maybe they could try and limit the interruptions of children and really just kind of horrible dreadful stuff so nice to see that it's happening that you know I was going to say still happening this will still happen the kids haven't like adapted to the zoom screens just because the pandemic is like never ending no if anything they've become bigger jerks about it which is exactly (laughs) expect more what's your win my win is the news this morning that the two largest emitters of carbon emissions the United States and China have just revealed that they've got a new agreement which has come as somewhat of a surprise at COP26 
They've got a new agreement to fight climate change, to work together to cut emissions this decade. So not by 2050, but actually this decade. So the deal has actually surprised the UK and it covers all things like reducing methane emissions, phasing out coal consumption, limiting deforestation, reducing emissions from transport, energy and industry and accelerating the transition to a global net zero economy. So all the things that Australia is not really (laughs) committing to doing. But this is such good news and it is a good news story for all of us. It is keeping hope and optimism alive, which is so important in the climate fight. And this is possibly, I mean, I need to see some more details, of course, and we'll see what happens. But as it stands at the moment, this is so positive and this is a win for women and girls everywhere because as we have discussed, climate change does discriminate and it is women and girls who have the most to lose. I dare say it's it's girls who have the most to lose because we'll see it in lost education, we'll see it in more child marriage, we'll see it in more gender-based violence. We are already seeing that and we'll see more as there are more climate-related events. So thankfully, US and China, let's make this happen. I know, I think it was just such a momentous kind of, I mean, I don't think it is symbolic. I think there's more meat to it. But I think the fact that these two countries, which let's face it, diplomatic tensions between the pair of them have been, you know, at kind of record high for a a long time. I think that putting a kind of stake in the ground and the declarations that both Biden and, and Xi Jinping have made here and, you know, this this kind of rhetoric around the greater need for cooperation between the pair is just really heartening because we do know that the reality is that our climate crisis is so heavily dependent on these two countries getting their act together. It's obviously not solely dependent. And as you've mentioned, Australia is an absolute laggard here. And I think that they get away with pretending that they don't need to do anything and putting their hands in the air because... Yeah. Well, it's actually even worse because it looks like Australia is actually attempting to water down the draft Glasgow agreement is refusing to join the 40 countries that have committed to end the use of coal and electricity generation by 2030. Australia has refused to join the global pledge by US and EU to cut methane emissions. So Australia is sort of there. You know, we all praised, we didn't quite praise, but we're like, well done, Scott Morrison, for actually getting on the plane and turning up because he wasn't going to, probably wishes he didn't, but Look at what's happening. Australia is there undermining this agreement. I think it's absolutely disgusting. But thankfully, there is at least something something that will come out of this two weeks because I know that so much hope was resting on this. I just want to add as well, I was really disappointed to hear Chris Bowen talking on Insiders over the weekend and not confirming that the Labor Party would actually be putting pressure on the coalition to sign that pledge around coal either. I think that's quite concerning that our more progressive side of politics is still not at that point when we see so many other countries willing to step up and make that call right now. Yeah, there's still way too much fear and I guess a short memory of the last election as well, but we have to do this and I think the the result will just be more independents getting elected. And Thank goodness, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so two stories this week to childcare, where, again, a little bit more decisive leadership would be handy, although I might add that Labor has issued a promise to raise the subsidy for all families regardless of their income bracket, and they've just kind of announced that in the past week. I might say that the New South Wales Liberal government has also signalled that they're looking to do something about the cost of childcare, so that is good news stories. 
I wrote about it this week came up when we received a press release a couple of weeks back announcing that this buy now, pay later service called Zip, which is, I guess, similar to Afterpay, this service would be offering buy now, pay later for childcare fees. And I kind of could see, yeah, there's something in that. It's offering a little bit more flexibility to parents. It is possibly better than having to put childcare fees on a credit card. And I know that some people do put childcare fees on a credit card. But also, it just opened up this idea that something is so very, very broken. If we are talking about having to put off payment of childcare fees to use one of these buy now, pay later services for childcare fees, for what you need to be able to work to earn the money to actually pay off the fees in the first place. But also because this is early childhood education, this is something that should theoretically really be offered and it is often in other countries but it should be offered to children aged three to five for free as we do expect children to be able to attend primary school they should be able to access this early childhood education it shouldn't require parents to have to use a buy now pay later service and for that buy now pay later service to i mean i'm guessing profit off that as well because i don't think they're doing this out of the goodness of their heart so it shouldn't require this It is so, so broken. And we've seen little incremental changes and increases over the years and improvements to the subsidy to help. But nothing seems to keep up with the rising costs of childcare. And I look at this story just seeing some of the daily rates across Sydney and Melbourne, you know, up to $170 a day in parts of Sydney. How do people afford that? And maybe slightly lower in other parts of Melbourne, but still definitely up there. So just to cite that research, it was from Kindy Care. So it was $168 was the highest rate they found in certain parts of Sydney and $161 in Melbourne. When fees are that high, what we see is that families have to make that choice about whether you know one parent will stay home, whether one parent may not work full time, whether one parent may not take on that additional shift because it may kind of push them over what they can afford in those childcare fees. And inevitably, we see that that one person ends up being a woman in a heterosexual dual income family. And often that in a single parent family, that is often a woman as well. And how I just, you know, it's just so hard to make this work. I mean, it's just crazy as well when all the modelling has been done to clearly show that making early childhood education universal in Australia is such a strong economic investment. All of that modelling has been done. There's absolutely zero reason at this point in time for the government not to be investing in that in a meaningful way and to actually look at systemic reform when it comes to this policy area, which they are just so reluctant to do. And it makes me think that it is mostly based on their own ideology, their own conservative ideology that women should actually be at home rearing children and men should be in the office working. For the life of me, I cannot understand why there would be any other rationale behind it. So the ABS has just released their figures for October and they find that the unemployment rate has increased to 5.2%, which I guess is to be expected in October. You know, much of the eastern states were still in lockdown. We've only been out of lockdown a few weeks, really. But as we'll see, um, this has just been released, but as we'll see in some of those figures, we'll see that women held the majority of those jobs that have lost or women have, in many cases, often just not working. They're just not looking for jobs at the moment because they don't have the childcare that they need. Or, you know, back in October particularly, they may have been managing the homeschool or other things associated with lockdown. So there's that issue. 
What we're also seeing, especially in the hospitality industry, is that the restaurants and shops and retail, they cannot fill the jobs now that everything is opened up because it's switched on so quickly. And I just think it just makes, of course, I mean, working hospitality, retail jobs, traditionally some of the lower paid work, how can people afford to pay childcare fees and work in those sorts of industries? So there just seems to be such, again, a disconnect with all of this that's going on. And the idea to try and improve women's workforce participation, which we know has actually gone down over the past year, obviously as a result of the pandemic, but also as a result of economic recovery policies that did favour male-dominated industries like construction. So this needs fixing and it needs fixing now. And the fact that parents are looking at buy now, pay later options, which I can totally understand. I mean, we may even look at that, but like the fact that it's come to this shows that it's broken. Totally. So good news story, Tala, this week. Well, actually, a couple of good news stories was the release of a study around cervical cancer rates globally. Basically, and I've been looking into this because we just recorded an episode for an upcoming Women's Health Project podcast that looks at cervical cancer as a bit of a slightly different shaped piece of the women's health puzzle. And that is because this is an area where there's been some really significant progress in recent decades. And cervical cancer is actually the first cancer that the World Health Organization has put in targets to eliminate. And it looks like that elimination may actually be possible. It's certainly very much possible in Australia. And the steps now are to work with our Pacific neighbours and whoever we can to push for the elimination of it elsewhere as well. So this week, the Australian Centre for the Prevention of Cervical Cancer launched, although it didn't actually launch, that is a name change. So it was formerly known as the VCS Foundation, and it has been the most prominent cervical cancer prevention institution in Australia since 1964. It changed its name to basically reflect that goal of eliminating cervical cancer as a public health problem in the country. And like I say, Australia is on track to making this happen. So with that, with that, we also saw a new study finding that the HPV vaccine, which many of us have had, has cut cases by 90%. So that is absolutely incredible. That's amazing research. Like I remember as a high school student getting that vaccine and when it came in and obviously, you know, you're just so kind of glib when you're a a teenager and not really understanding the full kind of gravity of it. But the fact that it's kind of led to this in that space of time, you know, we're talking kind of 15 years or or thereabouts, that it's kind of made that impact and that we're on track um, for that is just so incredible. Yeah. So that UK research, finding that it's cut it by 90%. But the other thing that we've changed is around screening. And this was, I thought, really exciting. And I did actually speak to Professor Marion Seville, who leads that that recently name-changed institute in Australia and who's been there for 30 years. And she commented, and she was really excited about this, this announcement And it kind of went under the radar a little bit, but this announcement that as of mid-next year, uh, those who are eligible to be screened for cervical cancer can opt to do so using a self-swabbing technique, basically. So instead of the traditional pelvic examination, you'd still go to your doctor, your healthcare professional, and you'd be given this like a swab, like a, you know, she people are comparing to say a COVID test. You might go behind a curtain to a bathroom or something and you'd use that swab yourself and then return that to your healthcare professional as your test. And it makes 
a massive difference. And they've done testing around this that found that there are around 15% of people who, who just will not do a pelvic examination, and that's for a variety of different reasons, whether that's for religious reasons, it could be because they've experienced sexual assault, it could be because they've had a bad experience with a pelvic examination, they find it painful, there's many, many different reasons. But she said that of that 15%, 85% who go and do this self-collection method instead actually go and do so and return the result. So that is huge. It means that we can get so many more people screened. It means that we can really capture like different communities and groups that are absolutely missing in some of these screening processes. And the best part of it also is that we can then take, that test is so scalable. I mean, she was saying how we can take this to, to Papua New Guinea that has really disturbingly high rates of cervical cancer, which is so tragic when this, we know that this is a cancer that can be prevented and can even be eliminated. We can take that there and a place where you know pelvic examinations are never going to be able to scale that, but you can in, in scaling this swabbing test. So I think it's really exciting. We go into a lot more depth in next week's Women's Health Project podcast, so please go and listen to that and you will hear direct from Professor Marion Seville as well. So we might move now, Ange, to our FinHack segment for this week. And FinHacks is the latest segment that we've added to the podcast and it's supported by Superhero, which is an app that makes investing super accessible and affordable for everyone. And the reason we are doing this is we're trying to look at different financial related stories and tips that can kind of empower us in the future. And it's been a huge support to have Superhero come on board and get behind this podcast. So the story I want to highlight today, we actually reported on, and it's some new research out of the US that's found that almost three quarters of young women are investing outside their retirement accounts now, with two thirds recognizing the value of investing for a specific goal compared to 56% of men in the same age bracket. And the study also shows a really kind of quick progression and uptake from young women throughout the pandemic, this kind of huge growth among women aged between 25 and 40 who have an income of more than 68,000. And they're really looking to see where they can invest now and invest in a meaningful way. And this is from Fidelity and Fidelity's head of women came out and she said, you know, one of the biggest regrets for baby boomer women is not investing more when they were younger among, let's face it, that's not the sole reason at all behind why many women of that generation are on a financial back foot. It's a very small part of the equation, but it is part of it. And she also says, you know, younger women recognize now that investing is an important path for them to achieve their goals. Um, so this is that's really good news that there is a greater upsurge here of, of young women looking at different opportunities to grow their wealth. One of the other findings in it though, and I know you're going to kind of speak to this in a moment through some tips, but is that the study also revealed that only 35% of women feel confident that their non-retirement savings are fittingly invested. So Lorna Kapusta, who is head of female wealth at Fidelity, said two-thirds do not feel comfortable in their ability to make investment decisions. And we're actually seeing that younger women are very similar to the older generation. So even though they're biting the bullet and still taking that opportunity, there seems to be still a little bit of a confidence deficit there. Um, so, Ange, you've got some tips around boosting 
confidence in investing. So can you share that? I can share those tips. Obviously, everyone's circumstances are different. So do your own research and and do what works for you. But I guess this is just from my experience. So the first thing that really boosted buying confidence is when I realized that you don't have to invest a lot of money. That was the first thing because that can sound like such a huge barrier because that makes it so much riskier. But rather, I thought, okay, I can set aside a small amount of money and I can invest a small amount. And that is what I can afford right now. And that's okay. And that's a great way to dip your toe in the water and to get started. From there, I just found doing heaps of research as much as I could and making that research exciting. I find that when I invest in stocks, I get excited about the companies. I like to see what they're doing. I like to see their results. I like to see their announcements. It really just connects me to the business news in a different kind of way. What also gave me the confidence was to consider socially responsible and ethical investing and the opportunity that you have to do this. If you do your research, if you have a little small amount to invest, it just felt empowering to be able to make those decisions for myself and to think like I know that ultimately (laughs) what I'm investing counts for nothing probably in the success of this business. But then at the same time, I also know that the money that I am investing, a place where I'd be proud to see it grow and proud to be able to take back the dividends of that and proud to be able to share that with my children and things like that. They are the main tips that I kind of feel helped break down some of the confidence barriers was particularly around starting small, doing that research seeing where it can be really empowering and where you get to have the say and where you get to make those decisions about what you actually believe in and want to support. Totally. And I think just one other thing is just that there are so many easy ways to automate investment portfolios these days. Um, And we've talked a little bit about some of the apps that, that are out there, but I also echo your sentiment around research in that regard. Do a little bit of research around you know, easy ways that you can automate your portfolio and potentially um, look at one of those apps to boost your efforts. Yeah, because that's one thing I would say there's two. See, I probably make it sound more complex than it needs to be and I don't need to do that. I just enjoy doing that. So I enjoy I might hear about a, a new, you know, renewable energy business in the US or something, and I'll find that interesting and I'll start researching it and get into it and then I'll put something behind it as well. So, but of course, you don't have to do that either, that there are other strategies and automation ways to, to keep it easy and obviously portfolios and things like that, that that simplify the process much more too. So thank you again to Superhero for supporting this segment and you can learn more at superhero.com.au or download the Superhero app. So, Tyler, recommendations. It's getting close to the end of the year. Surely we can find a little bit of time to watch something. I don't think anyone wants my recommendations on what to watch because really... Yeah, sometimes they're pretty bad. (laughs) come on. I'm so joking. (laughs) You are not boosting my confidence right now. Um, (laughs) On how to invest my time. (laughs) No, to be fair they're not going to be good because when it gets to this point in the year, all I look to is what trashy Christmas movies are coming out on Netflix. And I am very pleased to see that there are a number that will definitely be getting a a hot run in the Lambert household. 
Yes. So I haven't watched this, but in our news meeting today, and I always like these recommendations. So Jesse Two and Alison Ho both had watched the same movie last night just by chance. And that movie was a Christmas movie, Tyler. It's called Love Hard. Oh, I've I seen have not this. seen it. Yeah, I'm excited. But I'm just reading the uh, little blurb to it. And I can say that I will definitely be watching this movie. Really? <laughs> Possibly tonight. I love that kind of thing. I'm in. I'm in. After meeting her perfect match on a dating app, an LA writer learns she's been catfished when she flies 3,000 miles to surprise him for Christmas. Did Jessie like it? Because that's always. She did. Jessie liked it and Alison liked it. And they were also well ahead of the Squid Game game uh, before anyone else was talking about it. So I remember when I was talked to, I said, I asked them if it was about octopus. Maybe we (laughs) need to get Jessie and Ali on the end of these podcasts every week just to give their recommendations. It's mine. Instead of us sharing their recommendations. As two people, who, then we, we never actually uh, find the mental energy to watch anything. So I think I can find the mental energy to watch that. So I'll let you know how I go. I've been watching a lot week. of twirly woos with my two-year-old. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is the Women's Agenda podcast for another week. Thank you to our sponsor, Superhero. A reminder that you can check out all the stories that we've discussed and more on our website, womensagenda.com.au. And if you add a little forward slash subscribe, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter. So you can get this newsletter as it comes out. And you can also get some great tips about pop culture from direct from Jesse too. So you don't have to hear it secondhand on the podcast. Thank you for listening.